Well, we now have our main Bible reading, which is taken from Colossians 3, reading from verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. And it says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservant justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, in a moment we're going to have a look at that uh, small chunk of Colossians. But before we do, just a few things to mention. The first is, there will be a question time at the end of the sermon. So as soon as the sermon finishes, I'll open it up for questions. And I mention that now so that you know it's coming. And so you can be thinking of what questions you might like to ask. The other thing is there is a sermon outline in your service sheet, which you can use uh, if it's helpful, but obviously you can ignore if not. And then finally, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us who you are and what you're like. And in doing so, we can get to know uh, the real God, And as we reflect on these things now, we pray, Lord, that as we find out, we would appreciate that as we find out who you are, we'd see that as implications on who we are and how we live, and particularly how we relate to one another. Amen. And so, while she enjoyed being a full-time mother, Julie did admit that she felt she'd lost her identity. Before she had her first son, She'd been a high-profile doctor, a specialist in her field. She was once the one that all others would come to for advice. But now, Julie spends her week surrounded by Duplo and Brio, spending her time swapping dirty nappies and multiple readings of the same three Julia Donaldson books. Meanwhile, there was nothing that would wind Jane up more than when people introduced her as Stuart's wife. Jane had an identity in her own right, and she didn't like it, and she felt dismissed when she was only referred to as Stuart's wife. Jane was a person, not a possession. And before Alice began her new job, she was going to travel. From school to college to university, Alice had never had any time out for herself. 
she was now going to take some time for self-discovery to find out who she really was. Now, how we think about identity is quite intriguing. We're taught from an very early age that we need to make our stamp on the world and that we're all special. The films we watch and the songs we listen to teach us that we can do anything we want. We only have to dream it. And along with this comes an expectation that we will achieve great things and will change the world. While at the same time there are some aspects of life that are diminished. To be a mother, father, husband or wife isn't of any significance. Identity is found in career and achievements. What is of further interest is this way of looking at things has found its way into Christianity. Now, whether this has been conscious or subconscious, it's hard to tell. But what we see as the Christian presentation of this is found in the belief that the thing which is of greater importance is taking part in some significant ministry for God. Being part of a plan that God has specifically devised for you to provide you with a feeling of satisfaction. Now this inevitably introduces a two-tier Christianity. There are those that discover this greater plan that God has for their life. And there are others who never quite pin it down. And as such, only ever live a mediocre version of who they really could have been. But what's interesting is the Bible doesn't have this emphasis. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So the first thing to consider is the Trinity itself. God has revealed himself as Trinity. And this mystery only truly becomes known when God sends his son into the world as a man. That man being Jesus. Now, when Jesus says, I am God's son, he doesn't just reveal something about himself, but he also reveals something about God. And that is that God is Father. The implications of this is that throughout eternity, God is identified as Father. What we can also see is that the Father has a dependency upon the Son. That's to say, the Father can only identify as Father because of the Son's existence. Remove the Son, and the Father's no longer the Father. The father loses his identity because he can only be known as father because of the son. The father's identity assumes the presence of the son. Now you could say the same thing the other way around. If there was no father, there'd be no son. Also, for the sake of completeness, though it may not be quite as easy to get our heads around, we can describe how the father and son spirate the spirit 
or maybe a little easier, breathe the breath. But if you'd like to know more about that, you can maybe could pick that up at question time. What's important here is the father and son do not have the same hang-up as Jane, who takes issue when she's identified as Stuart's husband. Instead, far from taking issue with it, the eternal identity of the father is put in terms of the son's father. And this is God at his most intimate. Consider for a moment when we think of God as creator. We aren't considering here an eternal act because there was a time when there was no creation. But when we think of God as father of the son, then we're considering an eternal relationship. Now this should begin to point us in the direction that as God's creatures made in his image, primarily we are relational. And what gives us our identity isn't our job. What gives us our identity is our relationships with one another. See, what makes me distinct from the rest of the human race isn't my job. There are millions of pastors. What makes me distinct is my relationships. I'm the only person who can say I'm Caroline's husband, Henry, Theo and Archie's father, and Michael and Margaret's firstborn son. That is what makes me unique. And your uniqueness is also found in your relationships. And so it really should come as no surprise to us the direction Paul takes us in the letter to the Colossians. Have a look back at Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. What does it mean then to set your mind on things that are above, not on things uh, that are on earth. Well, it'd be very easy to think that this refers to a means by which we spend large amounts of time in deep trances and meditation, considering the heavens, and we do so at the expense of our relationships on earth. But it cannot with any credibility mean that, because when Paul describes what this does involve, he starts talking about Relationships. Specifically in the section we're looking at, relationships between wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. This is actually what we should expect. If we go back to creation, we find prior to the fall, there are good relationships between husband and wife. That's presented by the fact that they are both naked and yet were not shamed. And this all during the seventh day of which there was no end. God was at rest with his creation, including his image bearers. Then we come to post-fall. A man is hiding from God. 
man blames woman. And part of the curse includes a hostility now between husband and wife. This means then going forward, God's plan and his creation purposes are to be understood in terms of relationships. Relationships that are broken at the fall, but that we anticipate being restored a redemption. Notice how Paul sets out the relationships in today's passage. Christ is Lord in heaven. And as husbands and wives relate to one another, they do so as is fitting in the Lord. Children and parents are to relate to one another, fearing the Lord. And slaves are to serve their masters as serving the Lord. And masters are to treat their slaves well, knowing that they also have a master in heaven. What this means is, is we cannot serve Jesus while being hostile to our family. Rather, now that we serve Jesus, our relationship with him impacts and changes our relationships with one another. So that we reflect God's creation purposes. When the theologian Colin Gunton sets out to find a transcendental that explains the world we live in, he looks to the Trinity. He's attempting to solve the problem that we find ourselves in a world that reflects both diversity and unity. But the problem is, one always compromises the other. We see this in all areas of life. In an attempt to be diverse and unique, we wear the latest fashion, which is fine until everyone catches on and once again we all begin to look like clones of one another. The diversity has collapsed into unity. We see it in political movements. In an attempt to celebrate the many, the diversity, communism makes everyone equal, which ends up with everyone being the same. Or we see it on a socio-political level. In an attempt to unite a diverse city together, people are mixed into one education system and diverse people begin to lose that which makes them different. But when it comes to the Trinity, God is one God in three persons. There is a unity and diversity that isn't intention and one that doesn't compromise the other. Rather, both unity and diversity are held together and each complements the other. The Son and the Spirit, they carry out the will of the Father. The three together, bringing about the one united will of the Father. However, each take a distinct role and have a distinct contribution to this one plan. Diversity and unity complementing one another. But we don't only see it played out in redemptive history, it's also seen in their eternal relationship. The Father is Father of the Son, 
And the Father and the Son spirate the Spirit. Or as we said earlier, breathe the breath. But if there's no breath, there's no breather. The identity of the Father is found in there being a Son. If it were three friends, friend, 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 it would lose that distinctiveness, but also the unity. Rather, the distinct nature of the Father is that he is Father to the Son, and yet it's this diversity that unites them because the Father depends upon the Son for his identity. In the Son's absence, the Father loses his identity. And as God's image bearers, we reflect the same unity and diversity. We see it in a particular way in marriage where husband and wife are united in one flesh. And they do so through their diversity. Where the husband is dependent upon his wife, otherwise he wouldn't be a husband. And the wife dependent upon her husband, otherwise she wouldn't be a wife. But we also see in all our relationships, not only husband and wife, but parent and child, and our relationships with one another. And this is a very different view of the world. Our uniqueness is not to be found in our jobs and achievements, but as we fulfill God's plan as his redeemed people, carrying out his creation purposes, as we reflect his eternal character of both unity and diversity. But to do so, we need to relate well to one another, and we do so under the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these things, we can see that the only way to understand ourselves is to understand the one who gave us our life and existence. As we reflect your image, we see that we can only comprehend ourselves when we understand who you are. We thank you for the great privilege you've given us as the church to relate to one another under the head that is Christ. We thank you that we have this great privilege to reflect your created purposes to the world as we relate to one another under your Son, your anointed King. We pray, Lord, as we anticipate what this will look like in the new heavens and the new earth, we will live these ways, this way now on the earth, so that as people look into your kingdom, they can declare with us what a great God these people must serve. Amen. Well, I mentioned earlier on that there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about this morning. So that time has now arrived. So I'll give you a moment to have a think uh, whether there's anything you might like further clarification on.
further details on Yes, Josh. Yes, certainly. Um, so just for the recording, I'll repeat the question. So can we uh, further explore what it means for the father and son to spirate the spirit? Yes, so the reason I included it in there is I didn't feel comfortable not including it in there, but ideally I probably would have just uh, skirted over it uh, quite happily. Um, but I think, probably fairly, the accusation is given to the evangelical world is that they don't take the spirit seriously, and I don't want to be included in that group. Uh, we do take the spirit seriously, very crucial to who we are, um, so therefore I included it. Now, one of the things, the reason why we start with the father and son is I think that's uh, very clear. Uh, and so we've explored this idea that obviously the father has an identity. You know, he's only the father because of the son. Remove the son and you lose the father. Now, the father, son and spirit, with there being three persons, there has to be this aspect of actually the three of them are necessary. But then when you think in terms of the Father and the Spirit, or the Son and the Spirit, it doesn't quite lend itself in the same way as the Father and the Son. But it is there. So, spirate is an unusual word that we just don't use. And I think it might, may even be specific to this situation. So, the Father and Son are said to spirate the Spirit. And spirate literally is just spirit with an E on the end. So it's they've turned it into a verb. So I think it's I think it's a technical theological word. But if you think elsewhere, as you work our way through the Old Testament, um, like in Genesis and Ezekiel thirty-eight, um, we know that the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which is wind, breath, or spirit. And so when we see um, God breathing life into Adam and Eve, or when we see God breathing life into the dry bones, it's the breath of God, or the spirit of God, that breathes life. We can also see this to some extent, well you start then to see a parallel, that when you've got this imagery of the dry bones being recreated and life being breathed into them and then you've got Pentecost when God sends his spirit and if you like God breathes into um, the, the early church as it were that first congregation so the father and son are both 
both send the Spirit. So we, we see that in John. Jesus is going to send the, another counsellor or paraclete to replace him. That other paraclete is the Spirit. So the Father and Son send or breathe the breath. So that's why I didn't include it in that much detail because it's a lot more involved and not quite as obvious as the Father and the Son. There is a little bit more to be said about, because I shouldn't say this because you probably won't have noticed it, but what we've discussed there is uh, redemptive history. So that is God working through history. The Father and Son spirate the Spirit at Pentecost, or they send the Spirit at Pentecost. But obviously what we did with the Father and Son is we took that and looked at the eternal relationship. So the eternal relationship is their Father and Son not just in the confines of history, but in an eternal relationship. So when we think of the Spirit there, we've got the Father and the Son and the Spirit relating to um, one another as three persons. The Spirit is necessary to stop the Father and Son's love for one another collapsing in on one another. There's a third person in the relationship. And true relationships take place in communion. uh, Of at least, well, in this case, in three. So, the Spirit has a perfecting work of the Father and Son's relationship in that his presence um, stops the Father and Son's relationship and love for one another collapsing in. That's a bit of a teaser, and you're probably thinking, I need to know more about that. That's, but yeah, probably as much as we can say for now. Yes, Naomi. Okay, interesting. Okay, so let me just repeat the question for the recording. Um, So I've basically set up oppositions. So uh, you could put it this. I've said yes to finding identity in relationships, no to finding identity in work. But then we get um, the Paul talking about master and servant, and therefore um, isn't there something good and right about work there? So let me say a couple of things. (coughs) First of all, yes, there is a sense in that I'm going hell for leather on uh, talking about relationships because that's what we're talking about today. And I always think if you nuance everything, you never say anything. So we've said something today, and that's what we've said. Elsewhere, we might talk about um, in creation purposes, when God creates uh, man and woman in his image, he says to them... um, have dominion over the earth. He gives them a garden to care for. So he does give them work to do. So work is crucial and important. Um, So yes, we have a place for work. 
I guess one of the things I'm specifically thinking about today is just that sense of um, I guess it's just that thing of I think what we do both in society and as a church is that we throw relationships out with the bathwater as it were um, so there's a sense in that you can find people who um, become missionaries, but they do so at the com- and they compromise their family. So they're not caring for the family. And you're like, and it almost feels similar to that bit where Jesus says to, um, you know, the Corbin bit. So um, Jesus says to the people, you say, uh, you don't have to look after your parents because you've dedicated that to your um, to the Lord and he says well hang on a minute if you wanted to serve the Lord he says honor your parents and so I think that's the emphasis where I'm trying to place things there you can't do church ministry and do that well if you're estranged from or at odds with your family um, now, that's not to say there are situations where people are going to be at odds and estranged from the family, um, and those um, situations are going to be out of your control and those sorts of things. So, I'm not saying that we have to, at all costs, make sure that we are with our family, because sometimes that just isn't in, within, our, within, our, within our control. But rather... It's just trying to um, set right a overemphasis on ministry or work over relationships. Interestingly, with the master and the servant, and we yeah we could see a parallel between employer and employee. The emphasis there is not in the role that they do, the job that they do, but rather the emphasis on the relationship they have. So even there, it's relational. So it becomes a question about how do we uh, relate to our boss as opposed to finding our identity in the work that we do. So I hope that's helpful. And one last one. Uh, I wasn't actually asking a question. I was just going to offer Ecclesiastes 4. Okay. Yeah. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12. No, no, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 7 to 12. Oh, 7 to 12. Ecclesiastes. Uh, I think someone's taken that out of my Bible. I can never find it. Interestingly enough, just as I look for this, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes and equipped to serve. She had said, Ecclesiastes 4, 7 to 12. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappiness because, a uh, business. There are two, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, fall, one will lift up his fellow. 
But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's all a chasing after the wind. It seems a shame to end on that point, though, doesn't it? <laughs> right, what we'll do is we'll stop question time there. We'll sing. I have got something else to say in reflection. Uh, but yeah, thanks for that. Very helpful. Cheers. Um, yes, we're going to sing The Lord's My Shepherd. And then we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper together after a reflection.